0: Tell me, what do you make of mediums and witches? Yikes, I heard of yikes. What, well, what about Ouija boards and seances? Put and <laughs> Perhaps your your instincts... Tell you it's wrong to dabble in these things. But is that because they are fakes or because they are dangerous? When people engage in seances and visit a medium or a spiritualist, are, are they being taken for a ride? Or do these things really connect us to another world? You know, many people today visit mediums and spiritualist churches. Perhaps you have friends who have visited visited mediums or have dabbled in such things. Susanna Lipscomb is a professor, is Professor Emerita of History at the University of Roehampton in London. And last month, she published an article entitled, Why Are Women Becoming Witches? As the title of the article implies, witchcraft is on the rise... And at an alarming rate, did you know this, from the explosion of witches on Instagram and TikTok, along with their millions and millions of followers, to well-trafficked blogs, witches and witchcraft are soaring. And you know why that is? As Lipscomb demonstrates very poignantly in her article, these types of things are on the rise because in uncertain times, people are looking for assurance of some kind. They feel helpless, so they turn to magic. Lipscomb makes this insightful insight. She writes, having, having studied the witch hunts of the 16th and 17th centuries, I find this resurgence both fascinating and a little disturbing. Historically, people turned to magic when things felt uncertain or inexplicable. People turn to witches, to mediums, to things like the occult in desperate situations. Indeed, they seek out the dead for some kind of assuring word. They miss a loved one. They're grieved. Oh, and if they could just have some kind of word of comfort. Now, I doubt any of you have ever considered visiting a witch or a medium, medium, let alone becoming one. At least I hope so. (laughs) But what I do know is that all of us have experienced a great deal of uncertainty this past year, haven't we? A great deal of uncertainty. Indeed, we still feel it, don't we? And one of the things all of us crave in seasons of uncertainty when things aren't stable, when the world around us is confusing, is we want a word of assurance, don't we? I know I do. And the question becomes, to what or to who are you turning to for such assurance? This morning, we're going to study One of the most intriguing and wildly entertaining passages in all of the Bible. In 1 Samuel 28, you see, this morning in 1 Samuel 28, we find Saul in a very desperate situation. Saul is afraid and he feels helpless. And you know what Saul wants more than anything? Guess. A word of assurance, guidance. So you know what Saul does? He does what many are doing today, and he seeks out a witch. He turns to the medium of Endor. Yet as fascinating and entertaining as this chapter might be, faith, its lesson for us today, is even more significant. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 28. That's page 250 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. As you're turning there, let me give you the context Uh, We've been studying 1 Samuel for quite some time now, and ever since 1 Samuel chapter 17, David has really taken center stage in this book. And when we last left David in 1 Samuel 25, he learned a very, very valuable lesson from Abigail. And do you remember what that was? It was this, and that is vengeance is whose? the Lord's, not yours. Vengeance is the Lord's, not yours. Remember this? As the narrative of 1 Samuel 25 illustrates and the apostolic teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 19 makes clear, we do not own vengeance. It is not Ours. It belongs solely to the Lord. And I cannot overstate how important this is for us to understand. Christian, this means that every time you do take action and make revenge to make someone pay, you are actually stealing. You are taking something that belongs solely to the Lord and administering it as you see fit. And the Bible has a word for it, that action, and it's arrogance. Vengeance is whose? The Lord's, not yours. Well, in the following chapter, we see that David actually took this message to heart. You know why? Because in 1 Samuel 26, David has another opportunity to enact vengeance on Saul. Saul's sleeping in his camp. There's a spear right next to his head. David and one of his men sneak into Saul's camp. David's, uh, the guy that's with David says, now's your opportunity. Just pick up the steer and drive it through his head. Think of all the terrible things Saul has done to you. Yet instead of killing Saul, David spares his life again. And at the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 26, when Saul learns how David once again spared his life, in a moment of lucidity, Saul confesses his sin to David, and Saul blesses him. And that's the last time these two interact. Yet in 1 Samuel 27, right on the heels of that, David does something rather odd and strange. You know what David does? The text begins by him speaking to himself. And David says to himself this. He says, you know what? It would be best for me to go back to the Philistines and to link arms with King Achish, the king of Gath. David believed if he went back to the Philistines, then Saul would stop pursuing him. So that's what David does. He goes to Gath. And when David arrives, King Achish gives David and his men an entire town, the town of Ziklag. And David stays in that town, he and his men, all 600 of them and their spouses and stuff, for 16 months. And here's the crazy thing. During that time, David and his men make continual raids against the enemies of Israel. And what he does, he kills everybody. Men, women, children, everybody. So that word doesn't come back. Because what David tells King Achish is that he's actually fighting wars for the Philistines. He deceives King Achish. He's lying to King Achish. And King Achish... Believes him. In fact, King Achish so believes David that David has turned his back on Israel that you know what King Achish does? He says to David, David, we're mounting an attack against Israel, and I want you to be right by my side to fight the Israelites. More than that, King Achish says to him, In fact, David, I want you to be my bodyguard for life. Now put yourself in David's shoes. And here's a lesson here, and this is a sermon in of itself, but David finds himself in a position where every sin leads you. What's he going to do? Is he going to fight against God's people and kill God's people to continue the lie? Or is David going to blow his cover and then risk being killed himself by King Achish? inquiring minds want to know. And as we're reading this, we're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? We'll get a, a little of this. Just at the moment where we're dying to know how David's going to get out of the situation, you know what the author of 1 Samuel does? He cuts away from that scene and takes the camera and focuses it exclusively and gives our attention now on Saul. And we're not going to wait till chapter 29 to figure out what happens to David. What the author of Samuel does this for a very important reason. He cuts away from the drama surrounding David and focuses on Saul because there's a vitally important truth that we, the church today, need to learn from the end of Saul's life. So if you haven't already, look with me there at 1 Samuel 28. And I'm going to be reading beginning in verse 3 down to the end of chapter twenty-eight to verse twenty-five. We read this, verse three. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned from him and buried him at Ramah. Now, this is the second time we've heard this, isn't it? But this is gonna play an important role in the verses to come, as you're gonna see. And they buried him in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Now, let's just pause here for a second. Saul did this in obedience to the law of Moses. The law of Moses was very clear that mediums, necromancy, and the like, God's people to have nothing to do with it. For example, Leviticus 19.31 states this. I have it up on the screen. It says, do not turn to mediums or to necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. We see the same command repeated at least four other times in the Old Testament, twice again in Leviticus. Now, something that we just need to establish at the outset here is that in today's context... While some people might offer a real encounter with a departed loved one, it is not the dead they are actually speaking with. No, the Bible is quite clear. Please hear me. The dead do not speak. The dead do not haunt this earth. No, modern-day witches and mediums and necromancers, when they offer you to connect with someone from the dead, it is not the dead in which you're communicating with. No, those are demons. This is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20, says that Christians should not participate in pagan worship. Why? Because behind such things are demons. This is why it's right that Christians ought to have nothing, nothing to do with mediums, spiritualists, Ouija boards, and seances. Because you're not talking to the dead. You're engaging in the demonic. And listen, Saul knew this. That's why he kicked him out of the land of Israel. But notice what happens next here in verse 5. Or verse 4, rather. So the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shuman. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gebola. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was what? Afraid. And actually, fear is a dominant theme in this chapter. We're going to see as we work our way through this. People see things, and they're terrified. And his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So Saul, there's this, there's this battle. He goes to inquire of the Lord, yet heaven is silent. And you know whose fault that is? It's Saul's you know why? Because as this text illustrates, one of the primary ways God spoke to kings was through, one of the ways was through the priests. And tell me, class, what did Saul have Doeg the Edomite do to all the priests at Nob back in 1 Samuel 22? Kill them. However, one escaped, Abiathar, and that priest is now with who? David, along with the Urim. So he killed all the priests. The one that's left is with David. That priest has the Urim and the prophets, the other means by which God would communicate to kings. The chief prophet, Samuel, has long been dead. So heaven is silent. So what does Saul do next? We'll look at the next verse. Verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whoever I shall name to you the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. She obviously doesn't recognize it's Saul at this point, right? She says, surely you recognize what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this. Now, please hear me. Please do not confuse Saul as being a sincere person who simply simply wants to do the right thing here, and that's why he's seeking the Lord. That's not the case at all. You see, Saul does not want God. He doesn't want a relationship with God. All Saul wants is what God can give him. And how do we know this is the case? Because notice, there's no indication and there's no confession of sin or repentance in Saul. There's no acknowledgment of wrongdoing on his part. All he wants is what God can give him. Not only that, 1 Chronicles 10, 13, and 14 make it clear that Saul wasn't sincerely seeking the Lord in the first place. Listen to what that passage says. Thank you, Daniel, my son. God bless you, my child. Literally, my child. (laughs) Listen to what the Chronicler says about this passage. It says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord gave him over to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Furthermore, we know Saul wasn't sincerely seeking the Lord because Saul swears an oath in the Lord's name by the Lord's life as he seeks help from a source that the Lord has condemned. Do You see what he's doing here? It is sheer blasphemy to employ the divine name to guarantee immunity to the one engaging in practices contrary to divine law. So look at what happens next. Verse 11, Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now, why did she scream? You know why I think she screamed? Because I think, though she claims to be a medium, nothing like this has ever happened to her before. (laughs) She says she can talk to the dead, but she never really has. And now here, Samuel is, and notice how Samuel is described. Verse 13, the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground. Paged homage. Now that detail that Samuel is wearing a robe is no throwaway line. You know why? Because the last time Samuel's robe was mentioned it was back in chapter 15 when Saul tore it. And Samuel said, this is a sign that the kingdom has been torn from you. And as we're going to see here in a moment, those words are going to be repeated here. So verse 15, Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Notice he omits the priests because he slaughtered them all. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Why? Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. And therefore the Lord has done this thing To you this day. You know what Samuel's message is to Saul? It's the exact same thing he said to him back in chapter 15. Do you remember how Samuel described Saul's disobedience there when Saul failed to kill all the Amalekites? Do you remember how Samuel described Saul's sin? He said, Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And truly it is, because look at how this chapter ends. Verse 19, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Samuel's telling Saul, this is the last night of your life. You and your sons are going to die tomorrow. The Lord will give the army of of Israel into the hands of the Philistines also. Verse 20, then Saul fell at once at full length on the ground and filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and I listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him. And he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked it, unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Think about this. Saul would not listen to the word of the Lord, but who is he obeying in this portion of Scripture right now? A medium, a necromancer. And the chapter ends. Then they rose and went away that night. Amen and amen. <clears throat> Who can tell me <clears throat> what this is? Does anyone know what this is? Oh, very good. What are you going to say? Whistle. whistle. It is a whistle, and as people have said, it's a dog whistle, but not any kind of dog whistle. It's a silent dog whistle. Does anyone own one of these? Anyone? Maybe? Tell me, why do they call these a silent dog whistle? Why? Why? Because they don't make any noise, because it's so quiet that only the dogs can hear it. Very good. It's called a silent dog whistle, because when you blow into it, it emits a frequency that only What? dogs can hear in fact one of the signs that an animal is a dog is that it can hear this pitch in John 10:27 Jesus describes Christians as a certain animal but we're not likened to dogs we're likened to what sheep And just like with a dog whistle, Christian, please hear me, one of the signs that you are a sheep, one of the signs that you belong to God and are part of his people is that you hear not a whistle, but that you hear Christ's word and you obey. Jesus makes this very plain. Listen to what he says. I have it here up on the screen. Jesus says, My sheep hear my what? Voice. I know them, and here's the important thing, and they follow who? This is to say, Christians are not spiritually deaf. And faith, sometimes the word that Christ speaks to his church is a word of warning. And that is precisely what we see here in our text this morning. Faith, this tragic episode in Saul's life is a warning for the church today. And you know what that warning is? It's simply this do not harden your heart to God's word. Our passage this morning records the final night of Saul's life. And notice, it ends on a tragic note. In this passage, Saul is reaping what he has sown. He has sown rebellion. He has sown disregard and contempt for God's word. And as the prophet Samuel makes clear, Saul is now reaping God's rejection of him. Faith this final night of Saul's life is a warning. It's the whistle from Christ. It's a warning for you and I to not harden our hearts to God's word just like Saul did. Because here's the thing, please hear me. We all are vulnerable to do this. As Hebrews chapter 3 makes plain, And the life of Saul illustrates, at its root, hardness of heart. It originates in unbelief, that is, a lack of trust in God. And such unbelief produces contempt for God, which in turn showed itself in grumbling, complaining, and rebellion. Indeed, if you want to get a detailed explanation of what it means to have hardness of heart, read Psalm 95. There the author records the apex of Israel's hard-heartedness, and we see the same symptoms in the life of Saul. Saul hardened his heart to God and his word. Now, we're actually going to look more closely at the signs of a hardened heart next week, However, this morning, I want to draw your attention to the reasons why we ought not to harden our hearts to the word of God. For you see, (sighs) Samuel's words to Saul give two terrifying reasons why we ought not to harden our hearts to the word of God. And the first reason is this. It's because God may turn away from you. Look again at verses 15 through 18. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Notice how often it's clear that God has turned away from Saul. God has turned away from me. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done so to you as he spoke by me. This is referring back to 1 Samuel 15. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Why? Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. And what's this thing that God has done to Saul this day? He's turned away from him. That's the thing that God has done to Saul. Saul rejected the word of God. He persisted in that, and God has rejected Saul. In the 1992 Disney movie, Aladdin, Aladdin approaches the Cave of Wonders, which is in the shape of a jaguar. And do you remember what the Cave of Wonders says to Aladdin when Aladdin approaches the front of the cave? Do you remember what he says? He says, who disturbs my slumber? That's right, remember this? Who disturbs my slumber? Well, notice the prophet Samuel says something very similar, doesn't he, in verse 15? Notice what he says. He says, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? However, to Saul's disappointment, unlike the Cave of Wonders, Samuel does not give Saul a magic lamp or a word of comfort. Instead, Samuel speaks to Saul the same words of judgment. He spoke to him while he was alive. Namely, Saul, you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord is rejecting you. God has turned his back on Saul. And faith, this tragic episode in Saul's life has been given to us for a reason, and that is for us to persevere in our faith and not follow in his footsteps. And this is what I mean by that. The Bible clearly teaches that when God saves a person, they can never lose his or her salvation. Once a person has been regenerated by the power of Christ, once a person has become a genuine Christian and united to God by faith in Christ, nothing can separate us from Christ. Listen to me, not even our own sin. We see this taught in John 10, 28, where Jesus says that he gives eternal life to his own, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. These are promises. Or think of Paul, what he says in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? To complete it in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. Or think again of Romans 8, 39, where we read that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Scripture teaches that all those who belong to Jesus, they will, not might, they will persevere to the very end. Friend, that is a gospel promise. Yet faith, one of the means that God uses to help Christians persevere to the end are the warning passages in Scripture. And you know what? There's a ton of them. What I mean is God's promise that Christians will persevere to the end does not come to pass apart from His warnings, but through them. We could say this, God's warning is part of His saving. This is to say, the sheep hear the whistle. They hear the warning from their great shepherd and they obey accordingly. And I want to argue the life of Saul is one such warning. This tragic episode where God turns away from Saul, where heaven is silent, where Saul becomes the enemy of God, it's intended for us to fight the good fight of faith and persevere to the end. And let me give you a biblical example that I hope will illustrate this truth. If you're the note-taking type, you just might want to write down Acts 27. Consider the shipwreck story in Acts 27. Okay, in that passage, we learn that a storm struck this ship with such fury that everyone who was on board of the ship feared for their life. They thought they were going to die. Paul, who was on the ship at that time, received a word from the Lord through an angel that every single person on the ship though they're going through the storm every single person on that ship would be saved meaning every single person's life would be preserved that word that above that everyone aboard the ship would live was a divine promise right pledging safety to all now put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment Some of us, upon hearing this word, might be inclined to relax and take it easy after receiving such a promise. I mean, God just said, we're all going to live. Let go and let God. Paul, on the other hand, did not think that such a promise ruled out the need for warnings. This is clear as we read on in the narrative. For when the sailors tried to lower lifeboats, to escape the ship, you know what Paul did? Paul responded by warning the centurion that if the sailors left the ship, the lives on those on board would not be preserved. Now, why would Paul even bother to admonish the centurion about the scheme of the sailors? I mean, after all, he had received a promise from an angel that everyone aboard the boat would escape with their lives. So why did Paul give such a warning? New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner, in his excellent book, Run to Win the Prize, makes this helpful observation on this passage. He writes this. He said, Paul did not reason the way many of us do today. God has promised that the lives will all be saved. Therefore, any warning is superfluous. No, the urgent warning was the very means by which the promise was secured. The promise did not come to pass apart from the warning, but through it, he goes on. This same approach should be applied to the promises and threats in the scriptures regarding our salvation. It is by means of taking the warning seriously that the promise of our salvation is secured. And we see this dynamic throughout the pages of the Bible. And In fact, we could summarize it this way. And that's this. God's promise that Christians will persevere to the end does not come to pass apart from his warnings but through them. God's warning is part of his saving. And man, I mean, consider how often we see this in the Bible. Think of, for example, in 1 Corinthians ten twelve, where after the apostle Paul describes, please hear me, how God destroyed Israel because of her sin, okay? Paul just elaborates on how God destroyed Israel because of her sin. What does Paul say in the very next verse? He says, take heed lest what? Lest you fall too. There's a a divine warning, or (laughs) I mean, just consider the entire book of Hebrews, right? We have these warning passages all throughout Scripture and they're given as a means so that we would persevere to the end. And faith, the warning here in 1 Samuel 28 is that if you harden your heart to God's word, here's the warning. If you harden your heart to God's word, God will turn away from you. Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis writes this. He says, and I love it, referring to this passage. He says, the text is not gentle, but it is clear. If you persistently despise God's word, he will take it from you. If you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will endure God's silence. So just by way of application, friend, what is your attitude, what is the disposition of your heart towards God and His Word? Do you joyfully submit to God's Word in your life, or do you treat it indifferently? Think of that, that line in Pirates of the Caribbean where they're talking about a pirate's code and things so happen that it's going to go bad for Jack Black's character. But he says, you know what? They're, they're more like guidelines, right? <laughs> Is that how you treat God? They're kind of like guidelines. I mean, or worse yet, are you wise in your own eyes and disregard God's word completely? And and from one who sits in the counselor's chair, you know where often we see disregard for God's word. Where the the place it shows up the most often shows up most often with God's commands concerning relationships and morality. Friend, do not harden your heart towards God's word. Rather, joyfully submit to it. And when the living and active word of God, as Hebrews 4 says, it convicts you of your sin, don't hide it, don't cover it up, don't excuse it, but confess it and repent knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, amen? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So first, we aren't to harden our hearts to the word of God because God may turn away from you, but then second, because tomorrow is not promised. Look at verse 19. When Samuel says to Saul, moreover the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow... You and your son shall be with me, referring to death. You know, we're, we're not the only generation to have experienced the widespread outbreak of a disease. In the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon ministered in London during an outbreak of cholera. Thank you, cholera. And in his autobiography, Spurgeon recounts how one Monday morning he was awakened at 3 a.m. to the sharp ring of the doorbell. And Spurgeon was urged without delay to go to a, a house near his. And upon arrival, he went up two flights of stairs and he was shown into a room where the only occupants were a nurse and a dying man. And the nurse said that the dying man specifically asked for Spurgeon. Well, Spurgeon stood by the man's side and began to speak to him the gospel of grace. Yet the man gave no response. Spurgeon spoke again, but the only consciousness the man had was a foreboding terror mingled with a stupor of approaching death. Spurgeon spoke again, and then moments later, the man died. And as Stur- Spurgeon then stood over the, the dead man's body, he suddenly recognized the man. Spurgeon writes this about him. He says, There I stood, unable to help him. Promptly, as I had responded to his call, what could I do but look at his corpse and mourn a lost soul? He had, when in health, wickedly refused Christ. Yet in his death agony, he had superstitiously sent for me. He goes on. Too late, he sighed for the ministry of reconciliation and sought to enter in that closed door, but he was not able. There was no space left him then for repentance, for he had wasted the opportunity that God had long granted to him. We see the same with Saul in this text, don't we? Samuel is telling him, time has left you. In a matter of hours, Saul, you and your sons are going to die. And here's where I'm pleading to you this morning, you who can hear my voice in this room, and if you're watching online, you can hear my voice online. Don't follow in their steps Tomorrow is not promised. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you are aware of your sin and you feel the burden of the guilt of your sin, do not put off coming to Christ. Do away with this false notion. Don't deceive yourself that you can live like the devil all the days of your life, and then when you see your life's winding down, then I'm going to put my faith in Christ. I'm going to have my fun now, and then towards the end, I'm going to put my faith in Christ. This story from Spurgeon and the Life of Saul illustrates that is arrogant of you. Tomorrow's not promised. Don't put it off. Let today be the day of salvation for you, friend. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to your senses, man. You are a sinner deserving the damnation of God rightfully. And if you close your eyes in death now, you will wake up to an eternity of suffering for your sin. But you don't have to. God's grace is being extended to you in this very moment. So receive the gift of salvation by faith. Confess your sin and go all in trusting in the perfect performance of Jesus Christ on your behalf. To the Christian, hear me, Christian, the author is blowing the whistle, the whistle of warning. Have you heard it? Christian, if there is unconfessed sin in your life, if you are hiding sin, if you are covering up, allow the life of Saul to change your ways. Don't hide your sin, but bring it into the light. Confess it to God and receive the full assurance of forgiveness so you can walk in newness of life. Faith, Saul, sought a medium because he wanted a word of assurance. And notice where this led him. On the final night of his life, the final night of his life, he's having a counterfeit Passover meal. His last meal is at a table of demons. Yet whereas Samuel appeared from the grave... Jesus Christ actually rose from the grave, amen? And friend, when we put our trust in him, the resurrected Christ gives us the ultimate words of assurance that all of us long to hear in this uncertain world, words that can help us endure any kind of difficulty, and that is, peace I give to you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if that wasn't great enough, Christ then gives us a meal to remember and to celebrate the communion we have with him by faith. The meal we're about to enjoy here in a moment, communion. Church, we do not need to consult the dead. Why? We have a Savior who overcame the grave, amen? Amen. As his sheep, let us listen to his voice and obey, amen? Let's pray.